As you may be aware, uh, we as a family are in the process of moving house. Uh, after a three-year wait with a house on the market for three years, we've finally sold it. It's all official. We exchanged contracts um, this, this last week, um, and we're due to complete in 11 days' time. Now, I'm going to say I'm pretty laid back about the whole thing. I reckon we could probably pack everything the day before we move. I mean, I, I don't like kind of living amongst boxes and things. I just keep everything as it is, uh, and we could kind of pack it up the, the day before we move. Helen, my wife, the, on the other hand, is pretty much the other extreme. If she had won the argument, and there were arguments, if she had won the argument, she would have started packing three years ago when we first put the house on the market. Now, I, I, I say that, but I think actually she has been secretly packing all this time. I mean, if you've ever been to our house, I mean, uh, you can't see anything. It's all kind of hidden away. And uh, I keep stumbling across these back boxes that are labelled. Um, and I think kind of behind the scenes, she has actually been packing all this time. I mean, everything's neat, everything's tidy, a place for everything, a box for everything, everything's labelled. It's like at any moment, I can ask Helen, 1998 credit card statements or... The instructions for the slow cooker we were given as a gift for our wedding 14 years ago that we haven't touched since, and she's got it straight away. I mean, she knows where everything is nicely filed away. But the one thing, I'm not criticising here because she's not here to hear it, but the, the one thing she hasn't really given attention to is the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. We've lived in our current house eight years, and we've got two kids. It's amazing what you can find in our medicine cabinet. There are all manners of medicines and tablets and lotions and potions that uh, I guess over the years were bought to help us that if we took them now, they'd probably kill us. That They've kind of gone toxic. They've been there so long. It's like all kinds of interesting dates. Oh, that's when Tony Blair became prime minister or that's when Liverpool last won a trophy. I mean, kind of going back years and years and years. Now, all of this got me thinking about the series we're going to be doing this term, the series that we're starting this morning. It occurred to me that buying medicine, believing in medicine, telling other people about how great the medicine is, even understanding how the medicine interacts with the different chemicals in your body, it will do you absolutely no good until you what? Until you take the medicine. There speaks a doctor. She knows what she's talking about. In fact, that's pretty much true of any product that you buy. Even if you believe in it, even if you've done all the study, all the research, you know everything about the best product to have, you spend lots of money on it, even if you understand how the product works, it won't do you any good at all until you start using it. So, for example... If you're going to benefit from owning one of the latest state-of-the-art washing machines, you need to put in the effort to use it. It's the same with having gym membership or booking a holiday or buying a new car. If you don't use it, it's not going to make any difference to your life. Now, 2,000 years ago, a guy called James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he recognised that there are a whole load of believers in Jesus whole load of followers of Jesus who thought, that if you excuse the terminology, they thought that just by having purchased the product, owning the product, believing in the product, telling others about the product, learning more on a weekly basis about how the product could and should work, they thought that was enough. Although they were believers, it's like they had never really learnt 
See, use the products. And so James, back then, wrote this letter primarily to Jewish believers, people who had an incredibly deep and wide theological background, and this is basically what he says to them. He says, it's time you began using this faith that you're so proud of. It's time you began applying this faith that you claim to be so incredibly excited about. In fact, he says this. It's quite an in-your-face, abrupt statement. He says, if you don't use your faith for all practical purposes, it's worthless. If you don't begin applying what you know, you might as well not know it at all. Because on this side of eternity, faith that's not applied is useless. It's worthless. It won't do you one single bit of good. Because if it's going to have any impact on your life this side of eternity, faith must be applied as prescribed. And so that's the name of this series that we're going to be doing over this next term. Faith, use as prescribed. Now let me tell you why this is such an incredibly relevant topic and such an incredibly relevant book. I want to give you a bit of background. I grew up in a church which emphasized the importance of becoming a Christian. Now, don't hear me wrong, in case the alarm bells are sounding, this is a church that emphasizes the importance of becoming a Christian as well. But what would happen is that every year the youth group would go away for a camp And at the end of the week, there'd be this big meeting where the evangelist would be wheeled out to preach the gospel and make an appeal. Now again, don't hear me wrong, I'm all for preaching the gospel, I'm all for making appeals for people to respond. If you've been around in the church for any length of the time, you'll know we do those kind of things as well. But back then, loads of people would pray the prayer and excitedly call their parents to tell them the news. Now, nothing wrong with that. Uh, And assuming their parents were Christians themselves, they would breathe this huge sigh of relief. It was kind of like, job done. Now they've prayed the prayer, we don't need to worry about them anymore. The thinking was that Christianity is a bit like a disease, and if people could just catch it, everything would automatically turn out okay for them. Once they prayed the prayer and got in on the deal, it was all supposed to just automatically work out and they'd be transformed into this wonderful Christian person. You know what James says? That's rubbish. That's not the picture. That's not how it works. Christianity really isn't like a disease you try to get just by praying a prayer and suddenly, magically, mysteriously, your whole life changes just like that. That's not how it works. And it didn't work. I mean, looking back, I could list any number of people, friends of mine, peers of mine as I was growing up, who in the moment believed and prayed a prayer, but went away no different. And right now, they're absolutely nowhere with God. Others of you, maybe you grew up in a different tradition. Your parents made sure you were baptised or christened or dedicated as an infant. The thinking was, as long as you got some kind of a blessing from a church leader, that would somehow give you a whole better quality of life and guarantee that you got to heaven when you died. And maybe 
your parents aren't particularly happy that you're coming along to this church where we don't do any of that stuff, but they're making life pretty difficult for you and insisting that their grandchildren, if you ever produce any for them, are going to get baptised. They will be christened, they will be dedicated, because as long as they get splashed with a bit of water or receive the blessing from a leader of the church, then obviously they'll be fine. Now, I'm not making fun or anything, well, maybe a bit, but that, that's just the belief system. If I can just get them through that process, then I can breathe this massive sigh of relief because somehow, mysteriously, magically, they'll be sorted for the rest of their lives. And James would go, what? Where do you get that from? And then there's another group of you. And you grew up in a tradition that was totally focused on believing the right thing. You know, you'd hear doctrinal sermons week after week, and the whole goal was to get everyone to believe correctly. And it didn't really work itself out in any kind of practical, applicable way, but you were theologically very sound. And James would say, that's not it either. It's part of it. Believing and being theologically sound is important. Don't hear me wrong. But it's certainly not the whole picture. It's kind of like, if that's all there is, And it's pretty worthless. Some of you who are single, I don't know, maybe your parents are secretly or not so secretly praying that you find a nice Christian husband or a nice Christian wife. It's like if you put Christian A and Christian B together, you'll have a fantastic Christian marriage. James would say, that doesn't guarantee anything. I mean, putting two people together who believe all the right stuff doesn't guarantee a thing. Just because you believe all the right stuff doesn't guarantee you're going to do all the right stuff. Listen, there is no inherent value this side of eternity in simply believing all the right stuff. That's the message we're going to keep coming back to week after week through this series. Faith that is separated from application is useless. It's worthless. Might sound shocking to you, and you think, well, what's going on here? But it won't do you any good at all. And this morning, I want us to dive right into the middle of the book of James. We're going to look at a few verses right in the middle of this book, because I think that's kind of the best place to unpack the theme of the book as a whole. And after this week, when we've kind of tackled the main theme, we're going to be conventional and go back to the beginning of the book. Now, over the next few months, we're going to work systematically through the rest of James, showing how this central theme ties in to everything else. Now, here's the challenge facing me this morning. In the few minutes that I've got left, I've got to not only interpret a passage of Scripture for you, But I also have to show you that it isn't completely at odds with the rest of the Bible. Because on the surface, at least, what James says in the verses we're going to read in a moment, what James says here seems to contradict the teaching of Paul and the other writers of the New Testament and quite possibly what you've always thought was true as well. So if you find this just ever so slightly challenging... I want to encourage you to go away and study it some more for yourself. You might end up disagreeing with me, but worst case scenario, you'll end up reading your Bible a bit more, and that's got to be a good thing. So here's what I want you to do. I want to try and read these verses in James with a completely open mind, because here's what James is going to say. He's going to say, you might believe all the right stuff. 
You may have attended church religiously. You may have been baptised. You might have said all the right things. But if you are not applying what God has said to you, if you're not using your faith appropriately, it's not going to do you one single bit of good. So don't take comfort from the fact that you've prayed a prayer. Don't take comfort in the fact that you believe all the right things. It will have no practical impact on your life until you do what your faith calls upon you to do. Right, if you've got a Bible with you, make a turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 14. James 2 verse 14. If you haven't got a Bible with you, the words are on the screen behind me. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Read that again. What good is it, my brothers, my sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Now here's the problem with this verse. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, Paul says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. And here in James, James says this. What good is it, my brothers and my sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, has no works? Can such faith save him. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? I mean, what exactly is the basis for our salvation? Is it faith or is it works? Is it what we believe or is it what we do? Is it a gift or is it something that we have to earn? Who are we supposed to believe here, James or Paul? Well, funnily enough, I don't actually think it's a choice between the two of them. And if you understand what James is really saying here, and hopefully by the end you will really understand what James is saying here, there's actually no contradiction. Here's why. Three words I want you to notice before we move on. First of all, I want you to look at the word claims. What good is it, my brothers, my sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him. That word claims is absolutely key here. The picture here is of a person who claims that they have faith, but it doesn't show up in the way that they live. The implication is they don't have genuine faith. I don't know, perhaps they're claiming intellectually, they believe there's a God, they may even believe and claim with their mouth that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. But despite those claims, their life remains pretty much unaffected. What good is it, my brothers, my sisters, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Secondly, James goes on to say in that verse, can such faith save them? When you look again at that word such, it's like James is saying, can that kind of faith save them. Remember, he's drawing a distinction here between a genuine faith and a deficient faith, a bogus faith. And having described this deficient faith, this bogus faith as being not backed up with deeds, he asks whether that kind of faith 
can save anyone? The assumed answer is, no, that kind of faith can't save anyone. Now, if you think about it, Jesus himself said something very similar in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And even though Paul taught that salvation comes by grace through faith and not by works, he says in his letter to Titus in chapter 1, verse 16, they claim, the same word that James is using, they claim to know God, but by their actions, by the things they do, they deny him. So here's what I think. I think James is picking up on the teaching of his half-brother Jesus. It's certainly cluing into what Paul believes here in Titus 1, that this person who claims to have faith, this kind of faith, hasn't got a genuine faith that brings about salvation, but rather they have a deficient, they have a bogus faith. Can such faith save them? No. And then the third word I want to just comment on is this word, save. You see, whenever we as Christians see the word save, it's like our antennae go up and we immediately interpret it before we look at the context. So if someone was to come up to you after the meeting and ask you whether you're saved, what would you say? Well, you might say, yeah, I I am saved. I've, I've put my faith in Jesus. I've been born again. I know I'm saved. But if you walked up to someone back in the first century and asked whether they were saved, they'd have responded with a question to you. They'd have asked, from what? In other words, there was no theological meaning to this word. This was just a word. In fact, James uses this word saved three other times in this book. And all three times, he's not talking so much about our conversion in the past as talking about being saved in the future. Now, part of it is talking about being delivered from sin and death when Jesus returns at the end of time in glory. But he's also talking about being saved in some practical, physical sense. He's using it in the same way that most people nowadays use this word. The goalkeeper saved the penalty. That book saved our marriage. That deal saved my job. We use that word all the time to talk about something that preserved something that was important to us. And what James is setting us up for, and and the rest of the book really does support this interpretation, what he's asking is this. On a day-to-day basis, can faith that has no works, can faith that has no application, can that kind of faith save you or preserve any aspect of your life? I mean, can a husband whose doctrinal beliefs are completely accurate but never applies any of it, can that kind of faith save his marriage? And will it automatically make him a good father? Or can a family who who come along to the meeting every Sunday and sit together and sing all the songs, and if they don't apply their faith Monday through Saturday, can their faith save them financially? Can it preserve their relationships with others? Can, Can it save them from falling into sin? Can faith that is never applied, do anything to preserve your reputation or your relationships or your morality? 
on any level. Now this question that James is asking, I believe is so incredibly important for all of us. It's so incredibly important because behind it is a loving Heavenly Father who says, my desire is to preserve what's most important to you and to me. I want to save you from giving in to temptation. I want to protect you from decisions that have the potential just to wreck your life. I I want to preserve your relationship with your husband, with your wife. That's why I've given you so many steps in Scripture so you can put them into practice and and save that relationship. I want to save your relationships with others. I, I want to save you from regret when you stand before me at the end of time and give an account for your life. You see, faith that never acts is worthless faith when it comes to trying to save the things that are important in life. So James says, can unapplied faith do anything useful? Can it preserve anything? Can it save you? Now I want you to understand, James, in this letter, is not primarily talking about your eternal salvation. That's not the subject of this book. That's not the question he's trying to answer. But look, I know the way we think. And right now, some of you, you're going to be distracted, even for the rest of this talk, worrying about whether you're a Christian or not. Worrying about whether you genuinely prayed the prayer or not. And whether your faith is bogus or real. And are you saved or not saved? Or can you lose your salvation if it is genuine once and not genuine now? And what if you're not applying everything you believe? Where does that leave you? And there'll be all this kind of confusion in your mind. Am I saved or not? I want you to park all of that if you can. Because James isn't actually speaking into that whole debate. So I'm, I'm trusting. You can just kind of leave that alone. That, has, that's, that is a relevant question, but not relevant in terms of what James is talking about here. James's point is that all that worry and concern, am I saved or not? James's point is that we should be just as concerned about acting on what we believe. Am I living in the good of my salvation? Does the way I live match what I claim to believe? How am I applying my faith day by day in my relationships, in my work, in my finances, in my social life? Basically, James is asking on a day-to-day, temporal, practical kind of basis, can unapplied faith save you? And the answer he keeps coming back to through this letter is, no, it can't. Faith without works doesn't work. And yet many of us, because of the way we were raised and the way we think, we, we take comfort in the fact. We, we think that somehow there's some kind of spiritual bubble over us, that somehow our life is automatically going to be better because we're in the kingdom of God and we've put our faith in Christ. And James would say, in your dreams, listen, it's the application, it's the use of your faith that preserves you. It's the, it's the application of your faith that saves you on a day-to-day basis. It's the application, the use of your faith that preserves your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, your finances, your reputation, your work ethic, whatever. It's the application of your faith that saves you day in, day out. And to think that somehow, because you're a Christian, 
There is some practical good that will come from that. James would say, you need to wake up. And then he earths all of this with a very practical example. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? I don't know, just suppose after the meeting today, you're chatting to someone and they share with you about their nightmare week. They explain how they've lost their job over the last few days. On top of that, they've been burgled. On top of that, someone has stolen their credit cards and completely emptied their bank account. And on top of all of that, in the last week, their freezer broke and so they've had to throw away all of their food. So basically, they have nothing to eat and they're completely broke. And your heart goes out to them. I mean, it would, wouldn't it? And, uh, and you call some people over and you say, we must pray for them. And, and you're praying and you're in tears and you're sobbing because you're so overwhelmed by how difficult it is for them. And when you're finished, you hug them and embrace them and say, see ya, and go off and have your lunch and forget all about them. What good is that? Zero good. No good at all. You're in the same category as the person who says, well, that's just your tough luck. I'm not interested. Practically speaking, what use is your faith? The answer is no use. I mean, you never think of doing that. James says it's the same in every area of life. Sincerely believing the right stuff, singing about the right stuff, telling other people about the right stuff until it's applied in your own life is of no practical use. He goes on, verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He's saying, basically, there are two kinds of faith here. It's either living or it's dead. It's either active or it's inactive. Every believer that they've got faith, the question is, do you have active or inactive faith? Because inactive faith actually won't do you an ounce of good in this life. You know, I talk to so many Christians who can't understand, just can't get their heads around how they've ended up in some kind of moral ruin even though they've gone along to church every week for as far back as they can remember. You want to know the answer? It's pretty simple, really. Faith that is not coupled with actions is useless. There is no kind of magic bubble that covers you and makes you exempt from things going wrong in your life. Faith without application won't do anything for you. Getting the message. It is faith coupled with works that changes a life and preserves or saves the things that you and I want to see God save or preserve in our day-to-day lives. Now, James knew that not everyone would go along with this. And maybe you're sitting there today thinking, I'm not sure I go along with this. So what James does is make up an imaginary friend. Now, it sounds a bit sad, but that's kind of the kind of tool he uses to get this point across. He makes up an imaginary friend that then begins to argue with him. And this imaginary friend comes along and says, whoa, hold on a moment, James. I know where you're going with this. You're going to say... 
if you believe A, then I must do B. If you really believe there's a God, then you must do this. Now, James, I know where you're going with this. You're going to start telling me how to run my life. Listen, don't go there. I'm warning you, James, don't start telling me how to run my life. Don't start telling me how to run my marriage and my finances and my relationships. Don't tell me I can't live with her. Don't tell me I shouldn't watch those films. Don't tell me I shouldn't drink so much. Don't start meddling with me. I mean, what right have you got? I mean, I believe exactly the same things that you do, but just because two people believe the same doesn't mean they have to act the same. There is no necessary link between what we believe and how we act. And James, I can prove it to you. And so, this imaginary friend that James has created presents this argument against the fact that faith without works is useless. Now, let me tell you why this is so relevant before we look at these verses. You see, some of you grew up in churches and you left at the first available opportunity because you always felt as though the preacher was meddling with you. He, he kept talking about things going on in your life and inwardly you're thinking, inwardly you're screaming, stop interfering! What right have you got to tell me how to run my life? Just talk about how Jesus is the Son of God and stop there. I mean, why do you have to be so practical? It's annoying. And some of you, maybe you don't like this church very much for the very same reason. You'd rather we just preached on what you should believe rather than on how it impacts your everyday life. I mean, can't we just celebrate what we have in common? Because underneath it all, we believe the same things. Can't we just leave it at that? We can believe the same thing, but our faith doesn't have to work itself out in the same way. But James is going to say in a moment, as we're going to see, you're deluded. You're dead wrong. So let's have a look at this argument that he sets up. Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. That's the imaginary friend speaking. This person says, you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, this imaginary person is arguing that faith and deeds are two completely separate things. So what we do doesn't necessarily reflect what we believe. No link, no correlation between them. Just, just because we have faith doesn't mean we have to have certain deeds. Doesn't mean we have to live in a certain way. But James, he's having none of this. He argues straight back, verse 19. Come on then. He's kind of taunting him. Come on then. Show me your faith without your deeds. Go on, I'm, I'm looking. Where's your faith? Prove it without deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. He said, look, I can't see your faith if you don't do anything with it. If you don't do anything, your faith is completely invisible to me. It's like he's taunting him. I can demonstrate my faith to you by what I do. How about you? He continues, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good! Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you understand? He's saying belief by itself means nothing. I mean, even the demons have pretty good theology. They believe in God. Verse 20. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, that his faith and his actions were working together 
And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now for some of you, that almost sounds like heresy. But it's in the Bible. It's not me, it's not my version of it. It's in the Bible. Let's listen to what James is saying here. Let me try and explain it. Let me try and unpack it. James is saying to this Jewish audience, let's just do a survey. Why do you think Abraham is such a great guy? I guess there's a bit of a kind of awkward silence for a while and everyone's kind of looking at their toes. Finally someone pipes up and says, well, they kind of like the story where God says to Abraham, follow me and I'm not going to tell you where you're going. You're just going to leave everything behind and follow me. I mean, you've got to admire the faith that Abraham had to do that. So, so what are we celebrating in that story? Well, I guess we're celebrating what Abraham did. Exactly. The reason he's a hero in your eyes is because of what he did. Someone else kind of gets the idea and they pipe up and they say, well, I'll tell you something else I love about Abraham. I love that story where God says, take your son and sacrifice him. I don't actually love stories like that, but uh, maybe I, I, I appreciate Abraham's faith there. I mean, I don't think I could have done that, but Abraham trusted God, was willing to go through with it. He just trusted that God would sort it all out in the end. What incredible faith. And James would say, that's right. You see, what you celebrate about Abraham's life isn't just his faith, it's his deeds. Because isn't it true that if Abraham only believed and never did anything... Where would we be today as a nation? Well, we wouldn't be a nation. Exactly. The reason he's a righteous man in your eyes is not simply because of what he believed, it's because of what he did. Application, those of us who have faith in Christ, our righteousness and our relationships in what we do and how we work and how we engage with our culture, the thing that makes the difference isn't what we believe, is what we do with what we believe. And Abraham is a great example of that. The reason you think he's so great is because of how he coupled his works with his faith. And then James gives another illustration. It's the story of Rahab in the Old Testament. If you remember, Israel is about to destroy Jericho and so they send in the spies. And the spies are rumbled and they need somewhere to hide urgently and Rahab lets them hide in, our, in her house. Now, you need to understand, she could have been put to death for this. I mean, this was treason at the highest level. So the spies ask her why she's risking her life for them. And she replies kind of, well, I, I believe in your God. I mean, anyone who can just part the Red Sea, oh, I'm with him, I'm on his side. And so she protects the spies. But do you know what happened in the end? She made a deal, she made a pact with them that when they invaded the city, they would save her. And the point James makes is this. It was her acts of faith that saved her, that preserved her. Verse 25, in the same way, wasn't even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, is dead. He's saying, in this life, the only thing that gives your faith value 
is your willingness to apply and do something with what you are so proud of believing. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you can be in church every Sunday. You can take notes. You can talk about what you believe in life group every week. But if you never go away and apply any of it, it's worthless. It's useless. It's dead. You, you might as well not believe it at all. I hasten to add, that's not me speaking. That's James speaking. That, that's the Bible speaking. That, that's James's point in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You know what his point is? It's the application, it's the day-to-day living out of our faith that preserves us. But hang on a minute. I thought it was God who preserves us. It is God who preserves us, but the means and the tools he uses to preserve your home and your family and your relationships and your reputation and your finances, that the means he's chosen to preserve all of that is through the application of your faith. You see, it's not simply believing all the right stuff. It's applying what you believe. You can sit through countless sermons. You can agree with every word. You can even come up to me at the end and say how challenging it was and how God has really spoken to you. But if you never do anything as a result, it's pointless. It's dead. I mean, you can pray and pray and pray and pray, and it won't do you a bit of good. Isn't it true? We so often try to pray our way out of situations that we have behaved our way into. Well, I do that. I mean, Lord, I'm so sorry for doing that, but please come through for me. Please don't let me reap the consequences of my behaviour. You know what God does? In his grace and in his mercy, sometimes he intervenes and he rescues us from our own stupidity. And we say, thank you so much. I I promise I'll never do it again. But we do. So a lot of the time, he turns to us and says, well, I'm sorry, but, but see, faith without works is dead. And you thought just because you believed all the right stuff, you'd be preserved. And you thought just because you believed all the right stuff, everything would just work out fine in the end. But I'm telling you, if you don't apply what you know, it's worthless. It's useless. And you can wreck and ruin your life just like anybody else. There are no sins that you're immune from. There are no consequences that Christians don't face. There is no practical, everyday value to simply believing what you do with what you believe. Of course, the flip side of this is a wonderful truth. And this is what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. If you learn to apply your faith, God will preserve you. He'll preserve you. As we're going to see, in fact, as we talk about every week in this church, if you'll learn to apply your faith, God will work in every arena of your life, whether it's your relationships, your finances, your work, whatever. But it starts with being willing to start using your faith as God prescribes. 
And so, just to help you snap out of this tendency to perhaps not act on what you believe, as we draw to a close, I believe God would want to give us all a bit of a nudge. I think he'd want to say to us, I think about this. Isn't it true that your greatest regret has little to do with what you believed, but has a lot to do with what you did? And he'd say, look, I'm trying to preserve you. I'm trying to save you day in, day out. But my means of doing that isn't belief alone. And it's not prayer alone. It's applying your faith. Because faith without works is dead. It's worthless. It's useless. Might as well not believe it at all. Do you get it? The problem isn't with God. So often, sadly, the problem is with our application. The problem isn't our belief system. The problem is what we do or don't do with what we believe. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look to answer the question, what does a living faith look like? What does action-orientated faith look like? How do we make this thing come alive for each of us? So the book of James is all about how God wants to preserve you and your life through the application of his word. Wow.